Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Everything has a story. One just has to be able to properly understand it. This is especially so with the topic of serial killers. Joining us today is Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, a professor of forensic psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Dr. Schlesinger, we appreciate you being with us this morning. Glad to do it. As horrific as the topic is, it does require a serious study by both the mental health and the legal community. The whole notion of the serial killer is something that is very scary, has a malignant quality, and also a tantalizing curiosity as well. There is also a ritualistic, out-of-control, and sometimes sexual quality to it. But let's begin with a definition that is actually a question. Are there subtypes of killers? Is the profile, the best-known profile of a serial killer, different than someone who kills and may torture, mutilate, or rape a series of people for money or political purposes? Are, are these two different types of people? Well, let me start with some basic definitions. Serial killer generally means killing people in a series, but the subtypes that are most important is the serial sexual serial murderer, those who kill in a repetitive compulsive manner as a result of sexual drives. To say it another way, their killing is part of their sexual arousal pattern. The violence itself is eroticized, and that's the most prevalent type of serial killer, the type everyone is most concerned about. Examples are Ted Bundy and BTK and the Boston Strangler and so on. Now, having said that, there are other individuals that kill in a series, for example, contract killing. But that's very, very different from the serial sexual murderer. And these sorts of things really have to be differentiated because they have totally different motivational dynamics and behavioral patterns. Also, if you go to any state prison, you're going to find a handful of people that have killed multiple times as a result of a felony or arguments and so on. That's not what we're talking about here. My research has been limited to the serial sexual killer. And that is exactly the perfect segue into a recent article in which you looked at some of the characteristics, the traditional characteristics of what the serial sexual killer left behind in, in terms of signatures. But I have a question for you before sure. we get to that. Is there a particular quality, a, a known psychological background that leads someone to becoming a serial sexual killer? Do we have enough information about that? Well, we have some information. Let, let me answer it this way. Uh, 30 years ago, I wrote a book, Psychopathology of Homicide, with Eugene Revich, my colleague and psychiatrist, and we offered a displaced matricide theory of serial sexual murder, meaning that the person is symbolically killing his mother. It was consistent with psychoanalytic theory at the time, and it sounded correct by examining a number of cases, but with 30 years more experience, that is simply incorrect. I think the best way to understand the the ideology of this problem is looking at it from a biopsychosocial perspective with heavy emphasis on biology. Certainly, abuse and those sorts of things never help, and social context and pressures also don't help. But I believe these things are hardwired from a neurobiological perspective. Now, what the problem is is unclear. It could be hormonal, chemical, electrical, brain damage, a combination of those factors, and therefore a lot has to go wrong for somebody's 
sexuality to be fused in this way with sex and aggression. And since so many things need to go wrong, I think that explains why serial sexual murder is extremely rare. There's no evidence whatsoever that it's increasing, notwithstanding what you hear on the media. And it's been around for centuries, since pre-modern time in different countries and different cultures. But I think that's probably the best way to understand it and to think of the behavior that they engaged in as part of their sexual arousal pattern. Can we rehabilitate these people given our current skills? No. My answer basically is no for a number of reasons. Number one, we have trouble rehabilitating individuals with just social problems and drug-related issues and personality problems. This is an extremely complex situation, very, very dangerous. And it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to change someone's sexual arousal pattern. For example, if you're a heterosexual and sexually aroused to members of the opposite sex, could you go into a therapy program of some sort to turn you into a pedophile? Well, I think that's ridiculous. So why would the converse then be true? In addition, there's absolutely no experience in any type of treatment of these individuals. Once they go to state prison, they're there usually for the rest of their lives. However, uh, there are, in in my judgment, ominous signs of the potential sex murderer that I uh, delineated and, and published in, in, in another uh, article and book of the potential sex murderer. And if these people can be red flagged in adolescence before they actually kill somebody, at least there's a, perhaps a chance to prevent this type of thing. That's fascinating because so much of our traditional training has been that these folks come from malignant narcissism, antisocial personality disorder, sayism, a sense of entitlement, a sense of revenge. But you're talking about a, a hard wire. You're talking about a biological element of it. It's a whole different yeah. ballgame. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Now, it is true that if you look at most serial sexual murders with high numbers of victims, they often have psychopathic, narcissistic, sadistic type traits, characteristics, and behaviors. However, not all of them do. Some of them have more disorganized types of personalities, borderline schizophrenia, and so on. The personality mediates their sexual drive from the crime scene that they leave. To say it another way is, if you have a psychopathic personality or narcissistic, and your sexual arousal pattern is a fusion of sex and aggression, you can plan your crime to elude law enforcement and therefore rack up a high number of victims. If another individual has that same fused sexual and aggressive drive and he's borderline or psychotic, the problem is, because of their personality, they often act out impulsively without planning, and they're apprehended after the first or second attempt. So the personality does not result or cause someone to do this, but it determines how they carry the crime out, which then determines how many victims they amass. And the media adds to this in very bad ways. It talks about these people sometimes enjoying their extreme violence. Uh, yeah, well, and so many of these guys do enjoy their extreme violence because, remember, it's sexually gratifying. It's sexually stimulating, sexually arousing. And many of these guys have reported for well over 100 years that the sexual gratification they get from killing their victims is much greater than regular sexual relations with their wives, girlfriends, or partners. So they don't kill to necessarily hide their fantasy, they kill as part of their fantasy. That's right. They act out their fantasy. Now, it's also important to know that there is a much larger group of individuals who harbor these disturbed fantasies and do not act out from those who do act out. 
and what the difference is is unknown really at this time. Lately, there has been a lot of talk about how we can get some clues when we have a series of such murders, and these are known as ritual signs and signatures, and you did some interesting work which actually is producing some legal ramifications. Could you tell us a little bit about your exploration and, and studying the database about signatures and, and rituals? Sure. Sure. Well, we did this study in conjunction with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. It was published in the June issue of Apple. And this is the first empirical study of ritual and signature in serial sexual murder. Let let me interrupt for one second for those who don't know what Apple is. It's the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law. Right. People might think that it was something entirely else. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sure. And this is the first uh, empirical study of this. Now, the notion that serial sexual murderers do things at a crime scene beyond what is necessary to commit the homicide has been well documented for over 100 years. This is called overkill. Uh, Well, it could be overkill, but it could be other things like posing victims and so on. Overkill meaning 150 stab wounds. Uh, They do a lot of different things at a crime scene. In fact, even Kraft Ebbing back in 1886 in his classic Psychopathia Sexualis reported individuals filling victims' mouths with dirt, pressing their hands together, making them do certain things. So there's no question that 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 type of ritualistic behavior occurs. And why it occurs is because the act of murder alone is not psychosexually sufficient. They have to go beyond killing and live out their fantasies. These ritualistic, repetitive acts that they do at a crime scene are fantasy-driven. The question is, how consistent are they? You know, the media has taken off with this and used things like Silence of the Lambs, the guy who put a moth or butterfly in the mouth of all of his victims, and this sort of thing. So we took a look at this. It's never been empirically investigated before. We found that Ritualistic behavior certainly occurs, but it doesn't occur exactly the same way at every crime scene, although it's often thematically consistent and very frequently elaborated. So, for example, in, in victims one through five, as the offender is gaining more comfort, he may engage in behavior that's much more elaborate than he did in a prior victim. So it evolves. It would evolve, exactly. So, the, and so we looked at that, and then we also looked at the whole notion of signatures. You know, the myth had been that they leave these unique signatures at a crime scene. And, you know, the popular media has certainly gone with that, not only moths in their mouth, but gold chains and all these other sorts of things. And we operationalized it to try to add to its scientific seriousness and credibility, and we found that less than half actually engage in signature behavior, unique behavior behavior at a crime scene. And very often they don't do it at every crime scene because they may be interrupted. Uh, Someone may ring the doorbell or the the victim may uh, attack the person and then he has to gain control of the situation. So the crime scenes of serosexual murders are much, much more complex than the movies would have you, you realize. But I can tell you about one interesting finding that was a little bit unexpected. And probably, I think, probably our most significant finding, and and that is the whole notion of experiment, what we call experimentation at a crime scene. If you have five murders, let's say, and the women are, the bodies are just dumped, let's say naked, but no particular positioning or insertions and so on. But one victim, let's say victim number three or four, is done in a very, very different way, such as a case I had in Illinois where there was five victims dumped, but one woman was spread, her legs were spread open 
open and her vagina was cut out in a very meticulous manner to the extent that the police initially thought a surgeon may have done this. It, was, it wasn't hacked. I mean, it was done with a scalpel, it, it turns out. And, and so when you look at this, an inexperienced investigator, inexperienced in this particular area, would look at it and say, that has to be somebody different because it's so strange that someone would take the time to cut their vagina out and the other four just dump them. The truth is that is very, very typical. We found in 70% of our series, and we looked at 162 murders and 38 offenders, in 70% of the time, these offenders experiment at a crime scene and do something unique with one body that they had not done with the others, cutting their breasts off, removing their eyes, cutting their vagina out, and this sort of thing. And so the experienced homicide detective with 20, 25 years experience is going to need help in these types of cases because he or she may never have had this type of sexual murder in their experience. And all of the typical investigative signs like motive and opportunity all go out the window here because they create their own motive and create their own opportunity and so on. So they're going to need help, especially connecting these sorts of crimes. So is there any way that we can go backwards? And you you mentioned that there are red flags in maybe adolescence that we can see where we can intervene. People want to know what it is that we might be able to do to stop it. Is it possible? Well, here's some ominous signs of the potential sex murderer, and they are an increasing degree of significance. So Childhood abuse, which doesn't differentiate or predict much, but it's found in the backgrounds of so many of these guys, so I put it in. Inappropriate maternal sexual conduct. Boys need to see their mothers as asexual. It is very, very difficult for an adolescent boy to see his mother in any type of sexualized way, walking around her underwear, bringing boyfriends over, and so on. It's not that disturbing for a female to see her father that way. It's probably something cultural. Pathological lying and manipulation that is lying when you don't have to lie to gain control, sadistic fantasy with a compulsion to act, and this is usually generated by drawings and writings and interests the adolescent might have, animal cruelty, particularly towards cats, because cats a female symbol, the need to control and dominate others, repetitive fire setting, voyeurism, fetishism, and sexual burglary. Most burglaries are gain-oriented, drug addicts and that sort of thing, but there's a subgroup where the burglaries are sexually motivated with voyeuristic as well as fetishistic impulses. The ninth is unprovoked attacks on females associated with generalized misogynist emotion, uh, an adolescent boy stabbing a girl in the back with his pencil saying, I hate all women. And then, of course, evidence of a ritualistic behavior. I had a case of a a teenager who abducted two 14-year-olds, put tissue paper in their mouth. Four years later, when he was 18, he abducted two women, killed them and strangled them, and put tissue paper in their mouth as well, this type of ritualistic behavior. Let me me say a couple of things that I think are important for psychiatrists, and that is many psychiatrists without experience in this, which is almost everybody, often equates ritualistic behavior with a psychosis, arguing if you do this to a victim's body, foreign object insertions, degrading the victim in those horrific sorts of way, you have to be psychotic. Nothing could be further from the truth. These people are not psychotic, and the few that are, the psychosis is totally independent from their crime scene behavior.
And then the last thing I think it's important, not only for psychiatrists, but for criminal investigators, and many psychiatrists certainly consult with them, is the question as to whether or not this is scientific evidence from a legal perspective. That is, will it meet the Fry or Daubert standard? And my view is it does not. This is the first empirical study, and so whether it will meet the Daubert standard is questionable. And since it hasn't really been investigated that much, it could be argued that it really wouldn't meet the Fry standard, generally accepted. So, you know, we're right at the beginning of trying to understand this type of very complicated behavior from a scientific perspective rather than just, you know, anecdotal and case report and saying things like, in my experience, and so on. Well, to follow up with that, in I hate to use the phrase, but in the experience I've had meeting some of the sexual uh, serial killers, one of the things that always struck me is, generally speaking, they are so well-spoken and they are so charming. That's right. That it's, it's uncomfortable at times. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And the, those, if you met someone who's like that, that person probably had a high number of victims. And the reason I say that is because if he's charming and can engage you, he can probably plan his crimes. And if he can plan his crimes, he's going to try to elude law enforcement. I saw someone who is currently being, uh, the case is currently being prosecuted, so I can't talk beyond the point. He was very comfortable with it. He wasn't embarrassed. He says, I'm a narcissist. That's what he decided to call himself. And he was very comfortable with it. He says it released the tension. And when, I, right. when I asked him about that, I said, tell me what the tension is. Because I agree with you, sir. He was not psychotic in the slightest way. That's right. But he said it just took away my tension. So my question to him was, why couldn't you find a tension release somewhere else in life with something not as violent? Really couldn't give me an answer. Well, some of them do through masturbation because, remember, the tension, these are, this is sexual tension. Many people have sexual fantasies that they tell nobody about and don't act it out. These guys do act it out, and he, I think that your patient is quite correct. Many of them describe that as a sexual release, and because it's so stimulating and gratifying, it's repetitive. It's compulsive and repetitive, just as human sexuality is. Is there any sense, then, if we were to put these people on Lupron, the males, to reduce their sex drive, or any of the antidepressants that would reduce their sex drive, that this in any, in any manner could help? Do we have any evidence of that? Uh, there's no I mean, none of that has actually ever been tried with any significant at all, except for a case here and there. These things have been tried with sex offenders in, in general, rapists and so on, the chemical castration uh, studies. But these folks are not considered sex offenders legally, which in my judgment also is incorrect. Uh, they're just considered murderers. And so there's no experience in any of that. Antidepressants certainly have been used and accomplished very little in, in getting at the problem here. And also, it's generally after the fact by the time we get to put our hands on them. It's always after the fact. But always remember also, in a large percentage of the cases that have acted out this way, they've seen mental health professionals sometime in their past, usually for unrelated issues. And they're not recognized as such because, unfortunately, dangerousness and psychosis are often equated incorrectly. And, and so if you have somebody who's bright, verbal, articulate, as your guy was, a mental health person could say, you know, he seems pretty much intact. He doesn't seem that dangerous to me. And nothing could be further from the truth. And one of the other problems, which is something many of us discuss all the time, is that when they see a psychiatrist, it's usually for a very short period of time based on a very narrow presentation of some symptoms and then it's treated with some medication and that's it. 
That, exactly. That, that's absolutely they, correct. They don't get into it. Very interesting. Dr. Lewis Schlesinger is a professor of forensic psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. We've been talking about the aspects, insights, what's been learned, what need yet to be learned about serial sexual killers. Dr. Schlesinger, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. Thank you.